0: Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haines and Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. So also want to especially thank the Warwick Hotels International and specifically this hotel for underwriting this morning's breakfast. This is a great property, and would you please join me in thanking the Warwick. It's, it's now my great pleasure to, to introduce uh, our, our, our panelists, uh, my good friend, Dr. Emil Salia. Uh, many of you know Dr. Salia because he has been a frequent supporter and, and participant with our programs. He earned his doctorate in international relations at Georgetown University after completing both his master's and his bachelor's at the American University of Beirut. He's been at UNT in Denton for over a decade, and he's worked at a fellow at a number of think tanks ranging from the Brookings Institute, the Rand Corporation, and the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Scholars. On my left is Dr. Walid Al Faiki. You probably read, just that was a great column you wrote last week in the paper. He's an American Egyptian neurologist in Dallas, grew up in Egypt and Kuwait, and is a graduate of Ayn Shams University School of Medicine in Cairo. Currently has a private practice at, at Texas Neurology here in Dallas, holds positions at, at Baylor University Medical Center and University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center at Dallas. Um, so today, as, as we thought we would do this, each one of us will talk for about 7 to 10 minutes and I think you're going to hear some, some personal insights because you and I certainly have a, a personal tie to the countries that we're focusing on and then Dr. Saleha will bring his academic expertise and, and give us uh, really a, 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 a look at how this uh, movement is affecting the entire Middle East and, and, and the prospects for for democracy and, and what that means for these countries. And then, as this is Saturday the Melrose, although a larger crowd than normal, we're going to really engage in a conversation. And um, we're going to ask those of you who would like to ask questions, because we are podcasting, thanks to Haynes and Boone, we'd like you to come up to the microphone to, to ask your, your question. Um, and we'll start with, with, with me, not just because I'm in the center and the president of World Affairs Council, but that this all started with, with Tunisia. And uh, as many of you know, my attachment and interest in, in Tunisia really uh, began with my uh, good fortune to uh, uh, be the son of a, a doctor who was working with first an NGO, Project Hope, and then later the Department of State. And uh, I was in Tunisia for all of my high school years, and uh, I did not attend the American School. I went to a French lycee, and my classmates ranged from a lot of uh, children of diplomats to even Habbi Bourguiba, the then president's grandson. Um, then I worked at the Middle East Institute and uh, always kept a, a strong interest in Tunisia. In fact, when I was doing graduate work, my advisor said, You need to get your doctorate and focus on Tunisia because there's really only one professor who is working on Tunisia, and that's Carl Brown at Princeton. And that's about still the, the case, isn't it, Emile? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, I, I, and over the last few years, I've had the privilege of, of traveling to Tunisia several times. In full disclosure, and uh, I'll get into this in a, a few minutes, twice I led delegations that were paid for entirely by the government of Tunisia, uh, leading a national delegation and then a group here from Dallas-Fort Worth. And then I also led two real tourist groups that, uh, where people uh, went on their own, and it was sponsored by the World Affairs Council of, of Philadelphia. I I think when you look at Tunisia it's important to realize just the country's rich history and it's not surprising to me that Tunisia would be at the forefront of these dynamic changes Uh, Tunisia and its leadership and it's really the founder of the country Habib Bourguiba was really very uh, proactive in developing social reforms and and changes so um, if, if President Bourguiba is is looking at this um, I don't think he would be surprised to see necessarily the Tunisian flag waving in Yemen or in Egypt as it has um, in considering Tunisia as well it's also I think relevant to, to realize that Tunisia tends to look to southern Europe uh, just as much if not more than it looks to its neighbors and it is in a rough neighborhood uh, Libya and Algeria and uh, Tunisia uh, has always shied away from the tendencies that you saw during different periods of history of pan-Arabism, whether it be under uh, Nasser or efforts uh, in in the 70s and 80s of Gaddafi to try to create a stronger union and pan-Arabism. Uh, Tunisia has always tried to be and maintained its independence. I remember there was a very, very brief union in the, in the 70s between Tunisia and Libya, and our maid, not an educated woman, came into the house and she said, this will never happen. We are Tunisian first. We are not Arabs and we are certainly not Libyans. And I think that that, that, that cultural confidence uh, will, will help Tunisia, and I think Egypt is, is very much that way as as well, very confident of its own uh, personality. I do want to stress that I think that a lot of Tunisia's uh, present situation uh, can be traced back to President Bourguiba. Um, I'm not going to sit here and defend Bourguiba completely because clearly he stayed past his prime and in fact uh, he also had a, a pretty tough removal and they call it a bloodless medical coup when Ben Ali took over. But President Bourguiba, much like Ataturk, much like uh, Nelson Mandela, he really was the father of the country. And he was educated in France, got his law degree in Paris, and when Tunisia gained its independence from France in 1956, one of the first things that President Bourguiba did was to put in social reforms, uh, giving women rights to education, to own land, the right to divorce. Tunisia is still the only Arab country that has legally clearly um, uh, outlawed polygamy. And so a lot of those uh, uh, liberties and civil liberties, what we would call civil, you know, civil society, were, were first put in place by by, by President Bourguiba. Uh, as I said, regrettably, um, he sort of retrenched um, back in the 80s, shortly before his demise. And of course, as we know, Ben Ali uh, perhaps uh, pushed things way way too far. One thing too about Tunisia, it's important to recall, and you'll and and, and this makes sense when you see how the army behaved. Uh, a month ago is the army was intentionally kept very small Um, and a lot more of the country's resources was was put in in education. Every Tunisian boy or girl was able to have free education up through university Um, and I think this emphasis on education, social justice, gender equality uh, really is um, at the the root of, of some of Tunisia's success as well as some of the reasons that Tunisia was the first country to begin this revolution th- that we're seeing throughout the the Arab world. Um, it's it's also, I think, very interesting to see that this movement started in such a small community, and when we look at the revolutions that are happening throughout the Middle East, we can't say that they're all similar. I and mean, if we do that, we're going to make a huge mistake. Um, certainly, what's happening in Egypt and in Tunisia, I think, is clearly secular. It's economic driven, it's because people want liberties, they don't want to live under the abuse of dictators that they've had in their countries, but what you're seeing in, Kuwait, uh, in, in Bahrain, uh, and perhaps Kuwait, are, 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 is, is very different. I think many of us were fooled by Tunisia. And maybe, I was, I was thinking about this yesterday, it's a little bit like New Orleans and Katrina. You know, it's easy for years. We went to New Orleans. We went to, stayed in grand hotels in Bourbon Street and went to the quarter. Same thing in Tunisia. It's very easy to go and walk up the grand promenade of Avenue Habib Bourguiba, <coughs> stay at the Hilton, go to beautiful beach resorts, the best restaurants. And unless you really went deep into the country, you didn't see the economic variances that have only gotten worse in the last few years, um, this Hollywood staging um, really shrouded hid some of the severe abuses of human rights. Um, just yesterday, it was announced that a lot of the political prisoners are going to be released. amnesty is being given to them, and the numbers are as high as maybe up to two or three thousand political prisoners are going to be released one level Tunisia received all these plaudits. You can go right now and look at the uh, World Economic Forum. And Tunisia is listed as the most successful economically competitive country in Africa. The most successfully competitive economically country in the Middle East. And yet other studies will show, say, rep- World um, uh, Reporters with, Without Borders. Uh, Tunisia is ranked 143 out of 173 for freedom of the press. 144 out of 167 for a degree of author- authoritarianism. Um, ben Ali used the same arguments that maybe the Saudi rulers and certainly President Mubarak used that. He could not open up the country because if he did, you would see a rise of um, Islamism, Muslim Brotherhood. And so he was able to use that as a justification for not opening up the country. In 1994, President Ben Ali won 100% of the vote <laughs> with 95% of the turnout. But Perfect. then he opened things up, he said, because in October 2009, he only won 89% of the vote Lose with it. about the same percentage. So you know, it was getting a little bit tighter. Hmm. Um, I will say that during my last visit Tunisia, I became increasingly concerned. Uh, You would go through not just in Tunis or La Goulette or Sfax or Seuss, the major cities on the coast, but all over in the interior you would see men, mostly in their 20s and 30s, just sitting there drinking tea, playing dominoes, um, using their prayer beads. You didn't see the women. And I think one of the reasons was that is that women were in the house, they were taking care of the children, um, but that the men just had nothing to do. They could not get jobs. Um, I will say, too, that when I went to Tunisia three years ago on an official delegation, um, when we made a real effort to visit with some of the leaders in the opposition, uh, we were basically hijacked. Um, The government said, oh, instead of having you stay in Tunis, tonight. We thought it would be nice for you to go and see these uh, Roman uh, archaeological digs about three hours away from the country. We've arranged for you to stay overnight. Very subtle. But uh, that just showed, even with a group that we had um, representing the World Affairs Council from all over the country, they wanted to be sure, the government did, our minders, that we would not have a chance to visit with the opposition. When we were there as tourists, we were able to to visit a, a lot easier with different types of people. I will also say that we heard about how corrupt the first family was, but I had absolutely no idea to the degree of the corruption that 50% or more of the economy was really captured by the first family and most of the blame apparently goes to the, the first lady, uh, the Trebelsi family. Uh, right now 33 or more members of her family um, are in prison and as we know that there are just billions of dollars that may have been ensconced from the country. Just to give you one One example of the degree of corruption, Uh, an executive with Lazard had a beautiful yacht that he used in the Mediterranean. Well, apparently, the uh, first lady's brother-in-law decided he liked that yacht, so he stole it. And then he painted it and renamed it and kept it at a nice port in Tunisia, in Hamamet. The Interpol tracked that down. But then it was quietly arranged with the uh, compliance of the French government that it would be covered up. Um, WikiLeaks. A lot of pundits, a lot of people who are, are, are probably uh, certainly more uh, more aware of this than, than I am, but are arguing about this. But I do think WikiLeaks played a very important role in igniting the Tunisian revolution. Uh, uh, Robert Godek, our ambassador there at the time, uh, his cable were among the first cables leaked by the Guardian and by the New York Times and they were given a great deal of attention uh, by Al Jazeera. Uh, I'll just read a few of his cables, uh, excerpts. Anger is growing at Tunisia's high unemployment and regional inequities. As a consequence the risks of the regime's long term stability are increasing. The problem is clear. Tunisia has been ruled by the same president for 22 years. He has no successor and while President Ben Ali deserves credit for continuing many of the progressive policies of his predecessor he and his regime have lost touch with the Tunisian people he went on to say corruption in the inner circle is growing Tunisians intensely dislike even hate first lady uh, Leila Trabelsi. anger is growing Um, we'll also talk about the role of um, social media Facebook and Twitter they're certainly important and we read just a few days ago in the New York Times about how there was a group of young people who had been working together for maybe as much as two years but I think we need to be careful not to over exaggerate the role of social media I think Al Jazeera was maybe just as important or even more so because now whether you're in a Tunisian home or apartment or at a cafe in the smallest village. Everybody is watching Al Jazeera. They're not watching the government propaganda that they used to. Um, I would also say on social media and I got caught in this um, everyone said at first including the Economist and Le Monde and the New York Times that um, uh, Al-Bouzizi the the, the young man who um, uh, lit himself on fire uh, they said that he was a graduate of a university in engineering or computer science and one of the reasons for his frustration was that he had this education and that all he could do was sell vegetables that was false and that was that that myth if you wish was spread by social media um, just last week there was another instance of social media taking a story and that was that Algeria had blocked the internet and at least on that date last week that had not occurred so when we see all these stories we need to to be very 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 cautious unemployment in Tunisia is a very very severe problem it has been and that's the challenge for the future The official rate is 14%. The reality is it's much, much higher. Among the young, it is probably as high as 46% and 60% for people under 30 and 46% for those who have received a a, a university degree within the last 18 months. Tourism is the driving force for Tunisia's economy. Um, If you look at official statistics, say say that it contributes about 7% of the country's GDP. It's got to be a lot higher than that. I'm reminded of when I lived in Houston, and you would say that Houston's energy uh, contributed a certain amount to GDP. Well, it also affected (coughs) if you went to see the doctor or if you went to the dry cleaners. And when you look at uh, tourism in Tunisia, whether or not it's the restaurants, transportation, um, or any of the services, it's got to be much, much higher. Already they've lost 40% of tourism revenue compared to the last quarter and I think that number probably too is, uh, is is not accurate. What you're also seeing today in Tunisia is incredible labor unrest. None of us have a crystal ball about what's going to happen. Um, a, firm, a, a firm date for the elections has not been set by the transitional government. Uh, they're talking about sometime in about six months. In Tunisia there's a shell for democracy but it's not really been practiced. I've met with opposition leaders, and the difference between the opposition and what was the uh, dominant political party, the RDL, um, it's it's not really defined. Expectations are at a fever pitch in Tunisia, just like they are in Egypt. The government has been overthrown. Now people really expect for there to be a change. They expect for there to be immediate gratification, and that means higher wages and lower prices. There now is a free press, and um, Right of assembly, all of this is important, but it doesn't put food on the table. What lacking, What is lacking in Tunisia um, is someone who clearly has the moral authority and the legitimacy to lead. If you look at recent modern revolutions, um, whether it be a, uh, in, in former Soviet Union, uh, in Poland, or in the Czech Republic, you had someone that people really got behind and led the revolution. Uh, this person has not ap- uh, appeared in Tunisia. You may have seen this morning or in late press last night that it's been said in some press that President Ben Ali died of a stroke. The latest thing I saw a few minutes ago was that he had died, um, but it is not as uh, Frank Kreiser, who is our Honorary Consul of Tunisia, said. Um, it's not in Agence uh, uh, Press. It, it, we haven't seen it in, other than in a blog, but it's very possible that that Ben Ali uh, did die of a stroke yesterday in Saudi Arabia. Um, Um, I I think that's really, I've probably overstayed my time, but but that's enough to get us us started. I'd like
1: to turn it over to you. Great. Thank you very much. That was uh, very informative. Uh, and um, thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Uh, I've uh, been to the World of First Council uh, uh, activities before, and uh, always impressive. So, uh, Thanks Thanks for being here. Um, uh, First of all, I want to start by saying that I am not an expert on Egypt or the Middle East. All my experience is that I grew up there, uh, part of my life. Uh, I have family there that uh, were involved in this recent revolution. My uh, uh, older brother and my younger brother are there and they stood guard at night during this revolution to guard their houses. My older brother uh, house were uh, fired at by, by thugs that were roaming the streets in, uh, in, in Cairo during uh, the last uh, few days. Uh, and they're all healthy and fine now, you know, but um, it, it's been some uh, rough times. I have friends that uh, have been in Tahrir Square uh, during during the revolution and during all these protests, and we were uh, checking with them uh, all the time. I'm a neurologist uh, by profession, and uh, I know a few things about neurology. Um, the events that happened in Egypt over the last 30 years uh, remind me of a patient that I've had uh, not long ago. Uh, this was a young patient, it was an accomplished attorney. She actually practiced law and, and defended cases up to the Supreme Court of the United States. Very accomplished, and she, she, uh, she did that successfully. Uh, when she came to me, her family was complaining that over the last three years or so, this patient was becoming, she was becoming kind of uh, slow to react, uh, she's uh, uh, not well uh, kept, uh, kind of disheveled, uh, significant memory loss and significant cognitive dysfunction to the extent that she quit work. and. Uh, uh, and she had problems walking; she saw falling all over the place. So um, I did. Uh, we did an MRI of her brain, and we find that she had a huge, a big tumor in the front of her head. What it's called the frontal meningioma, almost a fist-sized tumor that was kind of slowly growing over the last three years for that patient, leading to these symptoms. Um, the frontal lobe of the brain is, is a part of the brain that is involved in memory, and attention, and recall, and behavior, and personality, and higher cognitive functions. And um, over the years, this tumor has been just pushing on that, that part of the brain and gradually making this uh, young, bright woman, basically, uh, dysfunction. Um, There is a symptom that we see with frontal lobe dysfunction is called ebulia, and ebulia means the the inability to do things. So these patients that have frontal lobe dysfunction, um, they, despite the fact that they have intact motor and sensory uh, powers, they are unable to do things. So they just don't have the program, they don't have the motivation to do things, and that is. Pretty much the same, in my opinion, of what has been happening in Egypt the last 30 years. The effects of Mubarak's dictatorship in, in, in his corrupt regime over Egypt uh, were very similar to the effects of that brain tumor um, on, on my patient. Um, over the last 30 years, we've seen, every Egyptian have seen this. There is significant uh, deterioration in, in economic, social, political, educational, uh, industrial uh, functions of, of the whole country. The uh, health care is, is rudimentary as well as infrastructure and, and all of this led to really stagnation of the whole country, and, and very limited rates of growth. Um, on January twenty fifth, the, the, the young uh, men and women of, of, of Egypt were uh, executed. The treatment plan to excise the tumor that afflicted Egypt in the last thirty years, and. Uh, they had a keen diagnosis and a keen implementation of that plan and they were joined by Egyptians all over the world in trying to get to treat Egypt out of this, this tumor that's been there for 30 years, uh, leading to its stagnation. And after 18 days of persistent peaceful protest, uh, and the death of more than 300 people, and uh, the injury of almost 5,000 people, the revolution succeeded in achieving its primary goal, which was the ouster of uh, President Hosni Mubarak, uh, who stepped down. So, um, looking back at these events that that were really dizzying events and just took us all by surprise in the whole world, um, there are significant factors, I believe, in my own personal opinion, that led to the success of this revolution. The first was one of Jim Lutu was the. social media. The social media really did a a great job in uh, getting the people together. It's been going on for the last several years. It it was a way, a virtual assembly, basically, of the uh, people of Egypt that went under the radar screen of the powerful intelligence and and security services in in Egypt that allowed for this to happen. Um, So that was definitely uh, uh, and, and by the time the the intelligence sources and what have you discovered this, it's probably, it was too late. The genie was already out of the box. The other thing, I think, the main factor for the success of the Egyptian revolution was the, the insistence of the peaceful assembly, and that there was no violence. Uh, the, all the violence that we've seen were carried out by the government thugs, and, and the, the protesters and revolutions were protecting themselves, and that's why it <coughs> led to the death of so many people. And, and this concept of peaceful protest, is it is not a new concept, but it is definitely a new Way of doing things in the Middle East, and and it is, I think, going to um, to change the the, the whole uh, area, uh, as uh, 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 Professor Amir will, will probably tell us in in a minute. Um, one of the things that I think also helped uh, for this revolution to succeed is the fact that that people of different interests in different uh, uh, goals all met at one idea, which is the ouster of the regime. So despite the fact that uh, the the revolution did not have any leader, it did have, however, a leading thought. And that leading thought is what pulled all these people together and, and helped for the revolution to succeed um, one of the things that I think also helped is the 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 way the government dealt with this uh, with this revolution which again by, uh, by by power and violence this led to the deaths of so many young people so many innocent young people uh, men and women that the basically the, the revolution at one point turned almost to a personal vendetta so people stood their ground and said we're not leaving because you know our brothers, our sisters, our kids died in this and they, they, and they were only peacefully protesting so we're not leaving and, and, and that's also something that we're, we're seeing other countries in the Middle East again the governments falling into the same mistake uh, meeting these peaceful protests with violence leading to the deaths of innocent people and, and um, you know, this will probably lead to, to, to revol- more revolt um, other uh, one of the other uh, issues also that helped with the success of this uh, revolution is um, the fact that in this revolution, th- this is probably the only time that the the cry for the revolution or the, the what the what the people chanted was always started with with the people demand. So, finding the people's power, uh, this is relatively new, or maybe it's not new, but it, we, we haven't heard that in the recent protests that were going on in Egypt in the last few years. Uh, the, the, the usual protests that you used to hear was things like, uh, fall to the, uh, uh, to, to the dictator, or uh, you know, enough of that, or, but to, to start your protest and to have this as your, your chant, the people demand harnessed this power, this this power that has been there, it's always been there, but it did harness that power, and, and everyone felt it, uh, and, and again, you are hearing this all over the Middle East, all the protests now are are starting with the people demand, the people found their power. Um, the words media coverage and as, as Jim alluded to also was was great in, the, in helping the success of this revolution and to some extent also the armies restrained the military in Egypt. The fact that they did not actually uh, cram uh, crush that, that revolution uh, probably helped it survive. So, What did the revolution in Egypt do so, so far? It led to the stepping down of the president. It, it stopped this idea of, of, of Ruling of the inheritance of presidency in Egypt, which was uh, very worrisome for all Egyptians that that there, that uh, President Mubarak was grooming his son Jamal to become the, the next president. Um, I believe that there, the revolution also brought in a, a sense of change in, in, in government that, that uh, at least that 's something that we see now on the TV and read the media and so on and, and look at the uh, government officials. It seems that there is a change of governing from the fact that it is a um, government in Egypt and probably the whole Middle East. Governors always had this sense of entitlement that they are it is it is the honor of the people that that they are governing us and now this is this is changing i, I believe this is the government now and the governors whether they're in you know uh, in the cabinet or or where have you anyone is, is feeling now that they're there to serve rather than to, to rule uh, the, um, the the revolution also led to the almost dissolution of the corrupt ruling party that used to be the party of Mubarak. Uh, it revived the sense of patriotism and national pride all over Egypt, all over the world, with a lot of activism. And uh, probably the attendance today kind of uh, maybe prove that here at the World uh, Trade, uh, or the World Council. Um, it also led to the uh, almost the scandalous exposure of the lies of the national media, the national media in Egypt and the newspapers were, were ridiculously uh, um, untrue and, 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 and had these ridiculous lies and they were completely out of, of touch with the whole uh, Egyptian uh, people and what was happening there, and, and it definitely lost their credit. So what remains to be done in Egypt? Uh, there is, uh, there's still considerable distrust of the governing, uh, of the current government, because it was instituted by the former president. So uh, the people are still looking for some changes there. Uh, the emergency law, the one that has ruled, that, that Mubarak ruled Egypt with for the last 30 years, that allowed them to detain anyone with no question uh, for indefinite time, is still is still uh, uh, is still there, <coughs> and it, it has not been cancelled yet. So that's something that needs to be done, or that's what people are looking for. Um, uh, the civilians are not uh, part of the uh, governing for now. There are definitely promises and timetable that's been put by the military to transition this in the next six months for a civilian leadership. But uh, people are looking for more rapid uh, steps towards that. And of course, the, the economic wheel of, of, of the country has stopped. It became to a standstill. And it, it needs to start working again because we're, Egypt is is probably on, on the edge there. So it, it mm-hmm. can, you know, if, the, if, if tourism doesn't start back again and there's no income coming into the, the country, uh, this may lead to even further turmoil and further problems. So. <laughs> Um, My patient, uh, after excision of that brain tumor, did very well. Uh, She did have a bit of a rough post optive course, she uh, had to have some rehabilitation, she she even had to have another surgery to repair uh, a minor complication, but overall within six months she was back to her normal self clever, witty, uh, smart, uh, I, I believe that, that Egypt will be, again, smart, witty, beautiful, and it will, my, my patient also had a great sense of humor when her family tells me, I'm not worried about the sense of humor for Egypt, Egypt actually, sense of humor has persisted through <laughs> this revolution, and it will continue to blossom, thank you very much. Thank you very much.
0: Professor. Thank you. (laughs) It's a
2: pleasure for me to be here to talk to you about uh, broad trends in the Middle East. Is that that okay with that? You're fine. Okay. And what I will uh, try to do, which I do in an entire semester within the coming 10 minutes, try to, you know, talk a little bit about the persistence of autocracy in the Middle East and why the prospects for these uh, popular uprisings and their chances of success, uh, what are the transitions for uh, democratic uh, rule in the Middle East, and then what are the implications for the U.S. and the peace process. As you can see, these are broad topics, I'll probably talk about each of them for a couple of minutes, but I would be more than happy uh, to expand upon them during our discussion. With regard to the persistence of autocracy, as we know, there are, of course, uh, both external and internal factors that led to the rise of these dictatorial regimes in the Middle East at the external level. You know, after the demise of the Ottoman Empire as a result of World War One, the Middle East came under the colonial rule of Britain and France. Now, Britain and France did not come to the Middle East with a Bill of Rights in their hands. What they did, they installed these autocratic regimes, whether it's in the Gulf or Jordan or Morocco or, you know, Egypt before and Libya and what have you. And so these regimes, you know, some of them that are still surviving, were installed by uh, colonial powers to take care of colonial interests in the Middle East. Unfortunately also, this was followed by the Cold War, whereby the Soviet Union supported its allies. And didn't give a damn, of course, about democracy. And we, too, the United States, supported all of these authoritarian regimes to contain the Soviet Union. And even with the demise of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, of course, we have 9-11 and the war on terrorism also uh, compelled the United States or United States selected to support any regime that will help us to fight the war on terrorism, which meant, you know, regimes that are in power are our best allies. So, as you can see from the external dimension, at the international level none of these you know factors helped to promote democracy despite the fact that president bush junior you know talked about spread of democracy in the middle east but there was really there was no tangible effort to promote democracy in the region now at the domestic level what happened is that also especially after end of colonialism as we know Many of the regimes in the Middle East, because of their fight against colonialism, created authoritarian, totalitarian regimes in the sense that the state will not tolerate multiplicity of political parties because this would allow for external enemies to penetrate the state. Later on, the same thing was used to prevent Islamic brotherhoods and Islamic movement to participate in politics. That's why they wouldn't allow political parties. But more importantly, aside from the fact that these regimes wouldn't allow political parties. They established single-party regimes, that there is only one party that will be allowed, and that is dominated by the regime. And of course, that party controlled the state, controlled uh, everything in the state. At the same time, these regimes also created huge bureaucracies, what came to be known as the public sector. You know, controlling the economy, no private sector, huge bureaucracy, governmental structure, and that allowed the government also to employ people and to keep everybody happy. The third thing that was done that perpetuated these regimes, they created huge military forces. The Middle East is the most militarized region in the world. They spend more money on weapons than any other region in the world. And they have more troops in the Middle Eastern forces than anywhere else in the world. And of course, the ultimate result of that, the military came to be a close ally for the regimes because the regimes extended to the military all kinds of benefits in terms of cars, apartments, all kinds of privileges. And later on in the 1980s, they started several of these regimes, started what came to be known military industrial complex whereby the military started uh, projects in the economic sphere like building tourist cities, hotels, roads, all kinds of owning food stores. So as a result, the regimes, especially like in Egypt and other places, created a military elite. So here what you could see that the enlargement of the state, the military as well as the co-optation of the business elite created that uh, persistence of these regimes. Whether we are talking about Egypt or you know, Tunisia, of course, as my colleague Jim said, they didn't have large military, but they still have the other aspects. Now with regard to the monarchies, in addition, what they tried to do in addition, you know, to expanding the public sector and the bureaucracy, the monarchies, especially in the Gulf, Saudi Arabia, Jordan and Morocco also used some Uh, elements that are essential in Middle Eastern culture. They all emphasize the role of the family, what came to be known as, as patriarchy. The role of the family, the centrality of the father in the family, that the kids, children, wives, whatever they are supposed and ought to respect the father. And therefore, these monarchies started looking at their countries, at their people as their family, and therefore you are supposed to respect the father and obey the father. So they use that a lot. In addition, because also these regimes uh, were established in a tribal background, Many of these regimes also try to use tribal values to legitimize themselves. Hence, the so-called consultative council, like you know, uh, King Abdullah creating in Saudi Arabia the consultative council after 1991. Kings, uh, you know, Sultan of Oman, Bahrain, many of these, you know, countries established that consultative council and, of course, members of that consultative council are appointed by the prince or the king. And these are the elite in the country. So that's how they could co-opt these people. The third thing that these monarchies also used is distributive rewards. Of course, they were very lucky and fortunate to have access to, uh, you know, tremendous wealth that they used to keep the people happy and give them all kind of free services, whether to education or healthcare or whatever they need. So, as you can see, these are the factors that, you know, accounted for the persistence of these dictatorships, whether at the monarchy level or at the uh, so-called Republican level. So, why then these uprisings? As my colleagues already stated, what happened is, at the same time, these regimes, while losing their legitimacy, while they are becoming more and more corrupt, At the same time, 60% of the population in the Middle East are below the age of 30. These are the people, as my colleagues just stated, have access to mass media, to Facebook, to internet. They are aware of what is going on. Many of them are also educated, attended university. The problem, however, they are unemployed and therefore they need jobs. And in the past, what the government used to do, it used to provide jobs in the public sector. But due to the financial crisis and you know economic problems that especially the republic regimes in the Middle East are facing, they couldn't afford to create more and more jobs. So the unemployed, the young are behind what is going on, and especially women who are also educated and refuse to continue to be in a subordinate status. In addition to this, over the last also 34 years, what what we witnessed is a huge urbanization process in the Middle East. Lots of people left the rural areas, went to the city to work, to get education, and that created a lot of problems, shortage of housing. And you know, no access to water and stuff like that. So people are complaining about that. <clears throat> so these are the factors that you know why all of a sudden these uprisings. Now the question is, what are the prospects for their success? I could talk about more you know reasons for the uprisings later on if uh, we need to. But what are the prospects for their success? Well, there are several really factors that could uh, determine whether on the long term they will be successful or not. Number one is the degree and the level to which these regimes, whether they are monarchies or republics, are willing to use repression to suppress these movements, like what's happening in Libya and what, what is happening in Algeria or Bahrain. And contingent upon that is, of course, the role of the military. Is the military ready to go along with the regimes to suppress the people because of its interests? Or are they, like what happened in Egypt, the military for one reason or another decided not to go together with the <clears throat> Mubarak regime, but rather, you know, more or less force them to resign and somehow uh, tolerate the uprising so far. Or like in Tunisia, because the military was never a big factor, they did not intervene in politics. A second factor that is really crucial, <coughs> aside from the, the role of the military, whether it will support the people or the regime, is what is behind the uprising like in Egypt and Tunisia, as we know, it's the young people supported by middle class and professionals. What about in Bahrain? There is there an ethnic dimension to it, whereby the ruling elite and the minority are the Sunnis that are in control, 25% of the population, while more than 75% of the population are Shia. And they have been excluded. Now, I'll talk about this uh, also in a minute because there are serious implications here to the outside world and to Iran. What do you do if there is an ethnic dimension? Is the ethnic minority going to support the regime, to suppress the majority? And You could say the same thing about Syria because Syria is also controlled by the Alawites and the Ba'ath party which is not more than 10-14%, while the vast majority of the population are Sunnis. So here, of course, the future of the uprising, if it were happening in Syria or continue in Bahrain, is to what extent is the minority going to go along with the uprising and demand, popular dem- you know, democratic reforms, or are they going to be afraid about their... You know privileges and benefits that they have derived. A third factor that is really crucial for the future of these uprisings: to what extent these young men and women and the poor and, and you know educated have support from the intelligentsia, the professionals, and even the business class. Is the business class going to abandon the regimes and try to support the uprising, start demanding participatory demands, or are they going to continue supporting the regimes? And that is really a crucial <coughs> factor in determining what will happen. And the last point I would like to talk about <coughs> is... Uh, assume that some of these will succeed. What path will they take for democratization? Are they gonna take the presidential path? And if they take that, that could lead to consolidation of power of the elite, like what happened with Mubarak or Sadat or Zain al Abidine, whereby the president will continue to dominate, though there is a parliament or are we are they going to go for a parliamentary system like the british <coughs> parliamentary system whereby the government is going to be formed by the par- by majority party within the par- within the parliament <coughs> unlike the presidential style where the president is going to you know appoint the government subject hopefully to parliamentary approval so if they were to go the parli- you know the parliamentary path i think that would be by far more uh, secured path to democratization than the presidential system which could you know to place limits upon democratization now of course the problem with the parliamentary Uh, approach. What about if the majority, like in Bahrain, if they become the Shia, if that were to ever happen and the royal family were to disappear and the majority of the Shia will dominate, are they gonna start being, uh, try to punish the Sunnis that exploit them in the past? That's why in the process of Democratic consolidation, you know, the minorities have to have their rights secured in any writing of the constitution or uh, process of uh, participation. And the last point, very briefly, I want to talk about is what are the implications for. Because you hear a lot nowadays about, oh, what about if there are elections and what will happen to the peace process between Israel and Egypt and what have you. And really, to be honest with you, we have been very short-sighted in the US, even under President Obama and unfortunately under President Bush, that we did not push enough and hard enough to bring about peace between Israel and the Palestinians. <clears throat> because the peace process and the right Palestinian rights for self-determination it's at the core of all Arab concerns and unfortunately the current Israeli government has not also pushed hard enough to promote the peace process. That is why if we are want to support democratization in the Middle East, and we wanted to succeed. But at the same time, we want to make sure that you know, radical movements are not going to take over or that the peace process is not going to be undermined, it is absolutely essential to go ahead with the peace process bring about a two-state solution that is long overdue. i will be more than happy to talk about any of these points uh, during discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much, Emil.
0: Again, thanks to the law firm Haynes and Boone, we are podcasting, so if I could invite anyone who has a question or comment to come up to the, to the to microphone here. One of the things we've been reading about a lot in the press, internationally as well in the United States, uh, Emil, is the role of the Muslim Brotherhood. Do we need to be concerned? What's your answer on this? That's a good question and the
2: answer for that, uh, uh, Jim, is really it depends upon uh, how the democratic process will go through. If there are well-established constitutional rules that there will be elections, that, you know, multiplicity of political parties, that there will be, you know, basic freedom, civil liberties, civil rights, and what have you. I think the Muslim Brotherhood, I would assume, in many countries will win parliamentary seats because unlike You know, these regimes in the Middle East, they could attack and easily put in jail, you know, uh, leftist or liberal uh, politicians, but they couldn't go and attack and destroy a mosque. Mm -hmm. And that's where the Muslim opposition, you know, has been. Uh, centered around the mosque and around the Islamic groups. So I have no doubt that if there are elections, they will win seats. It does not mean that you are going to end up with a radical government. Take Turkey. (coughs) Turkey is controlled by the uh, Justice and Development Party, and the Justice and Development Party is a moderate Islamic party that is pushing Turkey to join the European Union. It has brought more democratic reforms for turkey than any other government before so it really all depends upon you know what kind of constitutional arrangement that's why it's absolutely essential before they go for elections and you know they have to involve the leadership of the opposition. As many parties as possible. Exactly. Otherwise, we have lots of questions, Emil,
0: so, so let's start. I um, probably have uh, a good long line, so I'm going to ask everyone to, to answer the question, of course, but uh, as as briefly as uh, as possible. James, <coughs> okay, first question.
3: Okay, um, is this working? Okay, my question is, over the last 10 years, the United States has um, overthrown two regimes in the area and has uh, tried to establish the Democracy. I'd like to know what you all think of uh, as its role has been in the current situation. What that dynamic
0: has done. In other words, the activities in Afghanistan, Taliban, and in Iraq, and what the role.
1: Correct. Um, Well, the. you know, so far, it, it doesn't seem like the, uh, the efforts of the United States in uh, overturning—that's again my personal opinion—in in overturning the, uh, the, you know, in, like in Iraq and Afghanistan, have led to a stable democracy. Um, what seems to be working out now in in Asia and the rest of the Middle East may allow, uh, hopefully, to a more stable democracy. I think the uh, the role of the United States, uh, as I see it is to, to help support the people and direct them and, and help hopefully uh, decrease some of the, the uh, polarizing powers that might take these, these processes one way or the other in, in hopefully getting a more stable democracy. That, I think, will have more security uh, implication for the area rather than uh, you know, violently overturning governments.
2: Dr. Sileo? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, you cannot spread democracy over uh, on board of F 16 or F 18.
4: <coughs>
2: democracy has to start the way it is starting right now in the Middle East. Because, you know, trying to export democracy through military force is no, not going to succeed, especially to Afghanistan. You are talking about. As Brzezinski once said, uh, you know, pre-modern society, how can you bring to such a pre-modern society democracy? And with regard to Iraq, of course, there are, you know, some arrangement that has been made to guarantee the interests of the minorities within the parliament. Like, as you know, president is a Kurd. The prime minister is a Shia. The speaker of the house is a Sunni uh, in Iraq. And, you know, each group will have its... Uh, Uh, Representation in the parliament, but I don't know what will happen on the long term because the problem in Iraq, of course, aside from democracy, is economic resources, whereby the oil is in the south and the north and the center, where the Shia the Sunnis are, you have no
0: oil. I just have to say. Next question, please.
5: Yes, I I was uh, just came just came back from Egypt. I was there during the last couple of days before the fall of Mubarak. So the a lot of the uh, uh, people have been talking about the U.S. policy, the foreign policy, uh, regarding this revolution. And uh, not to say that the U.S. policy has very good reputation in the region, especially for its double standards. Uh, one example is this last veto last night, but that's a different subject. I mean, this time people were thinking that the U.S. <coughs> policy... Uh, that has been always uh, promoting democracy will be supporting this movement big times. And people are very, especially those who have been on the leading edge, are very uh, frustrated and disappointed and resent the dancing around of the Clinton and Obama during this whole episode. They were always behind the curve watching what was going on. One day they were saying this, the next day they were saying the opposite message or sending different messages and uh, i think people believe that the middle east before january 25th is not going to be the same or after the 25th is not going to be s- the same like before what should the policy now, people now are believe that the us should be communicating or interested in the people not in the in the regimes as as they used to before they were taking the Mubarak and and, and all these guys for granted. Things have changed now. Mm -hmm. What will be the future of the U.S. policy, foreign policy? I'll
0: I'll take a stab on that. My, My view is that the United States, especially during the Egyptian revolution, was really um, sort of caught between a, a very much a rock and a hard place and might have been better served if the president had not spoken so frequently, especially immediately after uh, President Mubarak gave his speech. And um, I don't think it's the position necessarily the press secretary to stand up and, and say that the president of Egypt should should, should step down and and um, there was just a, a great deal of uh, confusion. I also feel that it's difficult for the United States to sometimes just sit back and that we don't control this and that there is probably going to be, just as you said with your patient, there's going to be maybe some time when these countries are going to be perhaps readmitted and put back in, in the ICU and we need to be patient um, and that these revolutions are going to occur in their own own, own time. So my, my short answer is we need to be patient and but also be uh, supportive of uh, uh, the the fact that this really is revolutions that are coming up uh, from, from the people. Consul General, Honorary Consul. I want to thank all
3: three of you for your insights. I think there is a relationship in North Africa between politics and economics. Can everyone hear me? Is this thing yep,
0: on? Yep. We're, we're on.
3: In order to uh, put it in context, let me share with you a joke that is making the rounds of the Tunisian Samizdat uh, press, the internet. It involves a very sleek, well-fed Tunisian dog who crosses the border into Algeria where he meets a skinny, mangy, underfed Algerian dog. And the Algerian dog says to the Tunisian dog, you have everything across the border in Tunisia. You're well fed. The economy is strong. What brings you to Algeria? And the dog says, I come to Algeria to bark. <laughs> <laughs> and I think what, what that story tells me is that notwithstanding the fact that Tunisia, relatively speaking, has much less unemployment than any of its North African neighbors. Still, this hunger for political freedom uh, was stronger than the uh, economic uh, well-being of the population. But having said that, what I thought was missing from your comments was the need for strong economies to underpin these democratic revolutions. Because without full employment, without strong central banks, without uh, police forces, which are not corrupt, without a telecommunication (coughs) system, a free press, um, these revolutions will go the way of the revolution we saw in Russia. And I appreciate uh, your comments on that.
2: Thanks.
0: Emil? Yeah. No,
2: you're absolutely right, you know. And the issue, of course, is how do you do that? How do you guarantee that? And the problem is. Usually it is the leadership of the opposition uh, that uh, put these demands uh, in order to secure these basic liberties for the people. And as we look around, do we have well-established clear-cut leadership for these uprisings or is it just simply you know the rank and file of the people that are demonstrating? So I'm really hoping that over time there will emerge a leadership for the opposition that will articulate these demands and put it in a constitutional frame because basic liberties are absolutely essential. You know, what we talk about here, our various amendments, that's what needs to be included in any constitution, and it can only be introduced if you have clear-cut
0: leadership that understands and put these demands... I think also part of the question was, what type of form should foreign assistance take,
1: Waleed? Um, well, I absolutely agree that, and, and I kind of alluded this to the uh, towards the end of my uh, comments was that the uh, the economic wheel has to turn on in in, in these countries, and ha- the, the economy has to, to 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 start to work and to start to support uh, these uh, infant. Uh, uh, Liberated, hopefully democracies that are coming up in the Middle East, um, and and this would be, I think, the major role of the um, you know the the Western uh, economies and the United States in trying to help out these prop up these these hopefully new healthy democracies to stand up. Um, and, and that would be the, the, the major role. And it, and it goes also with the comment that uh, my friend Trip made uh, earlier is that this this effort can hopefully re-establish the, uh, the 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 image of the United States in the area, an image that has been tarnished by this, uh, you know, talk about democracy, supporting democracy on one hand, and, and the right of uh, people to for freedom and for assembly and so on, on the other hand, supporting these uh, repressive regimes. So, uh, I think this is a, a an, an excellent opportunity for the United <coughs> States and for all. Uh, Western, you know, uh, democracy and freedom-loving countries to uh, hopefully embrace these uh, these new hopefully democracies coming up economically and in, in, in help propping it up. And, and that I think will maintain a good uh good era for this this area of the world and and will maintain hopefully better stability. I'm not sure what the appetite
0: is in this country to provide a lot more foreign assistance or even in Europe after the recession and it isn't ironic to think that the countries that have the most money that could do this would be Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and and the monarchies. (laughs) Question?
5: One
6: of the elements that has made Dallas Fort Worth over the last 50 years has been data processing and there were five elements that were essential to the formation of a data processing industry. The first was the rule of law, the second was a limited degree of corruption, the third was a state taxation system that taxed businesses using people less than they taxed businesses using capital. The fourth thing was an educated workforce and the fifth thing was a relatively lower wage level in this area than in other parts of the country. Now, of course, all these things were evident in India, and that is why you have data processing in India and call centers in India. Now, what Middle Eastern country would be willing to put its young, educated, unemployed people to work in something
0: like data processing? Tunisia, in fact, has had a very extensive data processing; has done a lot of the call centers for Europe. Um, so. I- um, I'm not sure what that tells us right there, but that is is, is certainly the, the case. I think it's also quite a bit yeah, in Egypt, yeah, isn't it? Yeah.
1: There are several engineers here, actually, in, in the audience that already have some uh, relationship with uh, the IT in, in Egypt. I have actually friends here in, in uh, uh, Verizon and other communication uh, and IT industries that start to have that effort in Egypt. Your point is well taken, though, yeah, and it is in
0: Egypt and Tunisia where you probably see the most advanced IT industries, um, which you don't see, say, in Algeria or Yemen or or Libya. Ahmed Yanoury from Morocco. Yes. uh, This is a question for Dr. Emil.
4: Uh, After the initial flip-flop in the position of the Obama administration uh, toward the uprising in Tunisia
1: and Egypt. Uh, A lot of the experts and, I guess, the administration themselves believe that, you know, they they get the best outcome and they handle it right. Uh, I would like to know what is your opinion on, uh, I guess, how they handle it. And now that it's spreading to other countries uh, and you are an expert on... uh, uh, I guess the Middle East, uh, I would like to know uh, if you have to advise uh, the Obama administration about this, especially about Algeria and Morocco uh, what would you t- what would you tell them you
2: see that 's really. <clears throat> Ahmed, this is a good question. The question is, uh, when you are in the White House in the position of policymaker, you have to take into account yes, our interest supporting like these surprises, but at the same time, what our our national interest? You take Bahrain, for instance. Can we afford, as a United States that have interest to have access to oil in the Gulf region, make sure? that stability will be preserved. Can we simply see the regime uh, collapsing? In our naval operations there. And we have military bases exactly right in Bahrain, and that's where really the dilemma between our short-term interest and access to oil and military bases and trying to, you know, contain Iran and not allow Iran, you know, to take advantage of what's going on and it's not going to be that easy for them just to say yeah we support you know the uh, uprisings and however what could happen is i think from now on that uh, when we talk about democracy we can especially when we give foreign aid, we can also base it on basis of you have to create the rule of law as the colleague before, you know, mentioned, independence of the judiciary. That it should not be just, you know, judges will judge a case on the basis of what they are told by the president or the king. That there is a parliament that is, you know, have full legislative powers, that the executive is accountable. To to the legislature that there is freedom of the press that you know all of these basic uh, things that we can demand and they can be instituted on the long term that will serve the interests of these governments but also will uh, protect our interests in the region that's what i would say that you know we have to translate our verbal statements that we want democracy to spread. Emil, let's look
0: at it specifically with what's happening in Bahrain. Yesterday Secretary Clinton said that she views what's happening with concern. Overnight things are getting worse. Is there what should the United States do today or tomorrow? regard to Bahrain, it's
2: really, as I said again, you know, our interest versus what is going on. Absolutely. The majority of the Bahraini people have been suppressed.
0: But, but you're not saying, what, what should, is there something that we should do today?
2: I think that we can encourage again and try to, you know, the, through private negotiation or whatever it takes, uh, that the regime has to open up, has to allow for free elections and, uh, you know, a monarchy is a monarchy. It's not going to be overthrown as long as they allow for, you know, political participation and... But it's not going to happen overnight. You see, that's the thing, because if you were to allow these things to happen overnight, they're going to be a complete reversal of the status quo. And as a United States, can we afford that? Does it help our interests? And again, if you are in the White House, you are going to say it wouldn't. But on the long term, of course, it
1: will. On the other hand, yeah, though, ahead. just a quick comment to I me mean, on in, in Bahrain: can, can the United States afford to have a? a affiliated with a with a regime or a country like Bahrain who cracks up so violently on people having the army on the streets you know um, basically you know killing people sure. um, you know it's you know something I just thought of now you know is the you know the the famous saying is that you know who he this who um, wants um, uh, want to sacrifice security for liberty deserves neither right Does that does that apply only Lead to the United States, or that can be applied on our foreign policy? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. you know, where if if this dictum is is true, and we all believe in it. Um, can we apply it? Is, it? is it applicable to foreign policy? Because sometimes this has always been the trade. You say, well, you know, our security requires that we support suppressive uh, and, and autocratic right. yeah. regimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, you know, what about the liberty right. of the people? And yeah. the fear of the unknown, yeah. too. Yeah. And that's, at, the,
2: that's the issue, you know, the, as I said, you know, that's really the crucial issue. I wish there is a well defined leadership for the opposition. that you could talk to, and
0: then... Which so far we're not seeing nothing, in any of these countries. Yeah, see, that's a problem. Ed Thomas, you come here with lots of experience in the Foreign Service.
4: Uh, well, I uh, am particularly interested, as you would understand, knowing my background, in the reactions that we've seen in Iran to, particularly to, I think, the Egyptian and also the Bahraini case, but the Bahraini case is rather special, because they think Bahrain ought to be part of Iran. I mean, that's been sort of government policy, even under the Shah. But uh, but they're not going to press that one, I think. But in, uh, as regards Egypt, uh, they've been very contradictory uh, reactions. On the one hand, the uh, government saying, uh, ah, they've got the light. They're, uh, they're learning from our Islamic revolution back in 1979, and uh, they're going to uh, have an Islamic state which. Uh, Certainly, uh, it it doesn't look very much like. And uh, uh, this was uh, mentioned even by uh, President Obama, how contradictory that seemed to... Uh, uh, come from a government that had so uh, harshly uh, clamped down on the opposition mm-hmm. uh, that arose in the what they call the Green Movement, yeah. which is a movement within the yeah. constitution, if you like, of Iran.
0: Uh, so in uh, short... Iran.
4: So, right, what, can I just uh, yep. add something there? Uh, I'm wondering if that uh, uh, Egyptian movement might encourage more youth in Iran who are very actively uh, following events and uh, very well educated and so on, uh, to... Increase the opposition to the actual uh, Islamic Republic to change the system, as you know, uh, was done or seems to be done in Egypt.
0: Gentlemen and everyone, we have about another eight minutes, so I'm going to ask for the answers to be as succinct as possible as well as the questions. We'll try to get to as many as we can. Emil? Yeah, with regard to Iran, really, it's,
2: as I said earlier, the regime is more than willing to use repression as much as it takes to suppress the uprising. Look what happened after the re-election of uh, Najadi in 2009 with all of these uh, demonstrations that the elections you know, were rigged by the by Najadi. So it's really very hard to see how can a popular uprising in Iran, unless again there is leadership that could sustain sustain it on the long term. But Iran is gonna be a difficult case. That's my short answer really. Because of the revolutionary guard and the regime and has access to a lot of repression.
0: Okay. Question? Uh, yes. Uh I'd like to uh, get the output from this group on what they think of the Iranian uh, warships that are going to be going up the uh, Suez Canal, and uh, whether or not Egypt will or won't allow them to, and can they compete? Egypt said this morning that they would allow it. Um, Emil, how do you see that situation? in 30 seconds. Yeah. there is. A, you see, that's again, you know, external intervention. Are they, you know,
2: allowing these ships to go? So big deal. So what if the ships go through the Suez Canal? Well,
0: actually, they, they're the destination of Syria.
2: Yeah. But it's a symbolic, you know, thing. Are they going to go somewhere or I don't know.
0: And it is the first time that this has happened yeah. since the revolutions. So well,
3: I not think. only that, but the uh,
6: they're going to be flanking one uh, portion of Israel, and uh, we are. Uh, they have some very definite views about Israel,
0: and, uh, and we were talking earlier about the uh, Palestinian uh, people, uh, and I'd like to find out if uh, these are the same people that are uh, shooting rockets of large various descriptions and amounts into Israel. I think Thank we're you. really just going to have to see what happens over the next right. 24, 48 hours, but I tend to agree with you that this is something that clearly, if if they stepped out of bounds, action could be taken very quickly, and it's probably right. best for us to uh, sit back. Let me just do something. Bruce, come up and stand. If you could just run up here real quickly, being a, a former naval commander, and, 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 and give your view on that. How would how would you handle that if you were... Uh, at the fifth fleet right now and giving advice to the administration.
5: Well, the
0: political
6: question is one thing from a strictly tactical standpoint, uh, and I I
0: think you alluded to it, is that there would be adequate force from Israel and
5: from Israel's friends to stop any kind of provocative action. But from the symbolic stance, it's purely a political question of what – what the Iranians statement is trying to be made and what the response would be from the Israelis.
0: So that I can't comment on. Thank you very much, Bruce. Just questions now, no comments.
1: Dr. Salia stressed the importance of the Palestinian-Israeli peace process. What effect do you guys see um, the current revolutions that have happened in Tunisia and Egypt um, and the rest of the Middle East having
3: on the Palestinian-Israeli peace process? I
0: I will say one thing real quickly on this is that I think it's been very interesting in all of the revolutions that there's not been really any criticism of the United States. There's no burning of the flag, and there's been right. really no statements on, on on Israel or Palestinians. Would you add anything to that, either
1: one of you? Uh, quickly, if, if, uh, if mm-hmm. I may. Um, the, uh, well, the revolution in Egypt was really mainly for domestic issues. The, uh, I read the, actually a very interesting article in the heart uh, the Israeli Hearts uh, Journal about talking about that that peaceful revolution in, in Egypt might actually be um, a uh, a dangerous thing to the Israeli government, but a liberation to the Israelis. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, it, the The article alludes to the fact that it, it is it's shown how how peaceful protest can change things, and if that goes to to the Palestinian issue, and Palestinians go in masses you know out protesting the uh, illegal occupation and the uh, and so on that that actually might be the worst thing that happens to the Israeli government since the all the military might of the of, of Israel would, would would be kind of impotent uh, and that 's quoting from that article uh, in, in that in that sense so you know i I, I think that actually that might uh, turn out to be a way of, of solving this issue hopefully could be somewhat yeah. positive, yeah, positive. Yeah. please
5: Hello. Um, I wanted to ask do you think that political prisoners must be granted amnesty prior to elections and the rebuilding process
0: we are seeing political amnesty being given in Tunisia and in Egypt um, so it seems that the coalition governments the provisional governments are, are taking that that action and it really is being one of the demands that is coming c- coming from the from, from from the people.
5: Mr. Roby. So my question is um, about the power of the nation state, and there's been a lot written and uh, talked about over the last few years that it's really shifting away from nation state into individuals and groups. And so my question is Is what's happened in Tunisia and Egypt an indication of the truth of that or the reversal of that? And finally, within, specifically within Egypt, how is that translating into whether the relationship between the Coptic Christians and the Muslims in Egypt uh, is actually... Uh, strengthening and becoming warmer because of the nation-state affiliation or in fact uh, is it uh, creating additional stress
0: well why don't you touch on the Coptic relationship and then our political scientists here will let you tackle
1: the, the role of the state so the um, uh, again in, uh, I'll talk about this in, in my own experience growing up there uh, there uh, we've we've had you know uh, cops are part of the uh, fabric of the Egyptian society we have them as our friends our neighbors and and we've, we've grown up uh, we've never looked. Egyptians uh, never looked at ourselves as Muslims and Christians, or, or Muslims and Copts. We go to their churches and attend their their ceremonies and their weddings, and they come to our uh, uh, weddings and, and and ceremonies in in, in mosques. The, the these uprisings has been maybe in the last thirty years or so. I think were were product of. Um, uh, there could be so many factors for that, but but none of these factors were were. Uh, in my opinion, uh, uh, are significant enough to 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 separate that that uh, uh, cohesions of of the Copts and, and and the Muslims. And this was seen actually remarkably in in the recent in, in the recent protests, where you know there there are numerous uh, um, talks about or numerous events where you know the, the the Christians or the Copts were protecting the Muslims as they were praying, and vice versa. Uh, on, on, on the Sunday, uh, after the protesters, they had a big uh, uh, Christian um, ceremony in Tahrir Square, and the Muslims uh, protected them. Um, and uh, even though I heard recently this last, just uh, yesterday, where had, they had this big, huge, more than a million people gathered in Tahrir Square, and they were, during the prayer, the uh, Friday prayer, the the, uh, the instructions, Instructions of the Imam were, were the, the people in the back way distant could not hear it. So the Christians that were there were actually carrying on the the directions of the Imam. So o- overall, I, I think that what this uh, protest and this revolution did is actually it, it it definitely strengthened what was already, in my view, a strong, uh, cohesive uh, relationship between them. But apostles. what was interesting is that in December
0: there was a, you know, really some increased tension between the groups and in a sense this revolution has, has yeah. brought the Copts and the Muslims together.
1: To, to yeah, you, you're talking about that church that was, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and, right. and, and if you would have seen I mean, the, uh, the, the, the revolt against that, uh, that uh, accident or that uh, you know, ha- terrible, horrible accident happened in, in Alexandria where, uh, on, you know, the Christians, in, the Copts in Egypt, they celebrate Christmas on January 7th Mm-hmm. And that January seventh was uh, celebrated by all Egyptians, Muslims and Christians to support uh, the role of the powers. state, Dr. Saleh.
2: Yep. Well, that's a big question. International relation literature. have to have
0: you back for that. Right,
2: exactly. Between you know what is referred to as the realists and the liberals, whereby the realists, you know, would say that the primacy of the nation state is paramount, and that sovereignty of the nation state cannot be undermined. While the liberals would say, you know, due to mass media, due to mass communication, due to the empowerment of the people, multinational corporations, you know, what have you, transnational religious groups, and, you know, start questioning the primacy of the nation-state. And I think what's happening in the Middle East right now with this uh, uprising and the ramifications of the uprising, if they continue to spread from one country to another, it shows you that this concept of the primacy of the nation-state that nobody could tell you what to do is being uh,
0: challenged. You know, we had just a week ago at the World Affairs Council, Parag Khanna, his book, How to Run the World. Right. And if you're interested in that topic, do read that book. And then in March, our Global IQ program will be on the role of the state, and I'll be having a discussion with the editor-in-chief, John Micklethite just on that topic. Right. You have the last question.
5: Um, uh, does the U.S. government still have a chance to help in the democratization process in Egypt, especially that the economical problems are one of the bigger problems in Egypt now, with dropping the debt of Egypt rather than maybe helping in foreign aid, would that help? And can the U.S. government afford to help the country in that regard? How much debt do we Does Egypt have? And I mean, most of it has been
0: foreign assistance. Yeah, it is. So it's it's really, you know, in terms of the
2: aid that we give to Egypt, you know, like $1.3 billion goes to the military. And I guess that's why, in a way, the military forced uh, Mubarak to step down because on the long term, their interest is to continue to make U.S. happy and get the money from the U.S. and make sure that they will continue to have their, right, you know.
0: Well, I want to thank everyone, especially you, Dr. Walid Al-Faqi, Dr. Professor Emile Salia for being with us. It's uh, wonderful to see such a, a large t- turnout at Saturdays at Melrose. Again, I want to thank the, the Warwick Hotels for being such a good sponsor. But again, thank you all for being here. And let's give a, a great hand for our guests here.
3: For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth,
0: visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.